0: say that we value what God desires and we believe and trust that he wants what's best for us. And I think if we were honest for ourselves there would be times when we could say no, no our lives really don't reflect that. And We need to repent of that and we need to turn towards him. James continues that discussion in chapter 4 and so we're going to take a look at that today. We're going to go through verses 1 through 12 this morning. We're going to kind of wrap up Uh, this part of the book of James where he's talking about the choice we must make between godly wisdom and earthly wisdom, between the flesh and the spirit. So hopefully by now you found James chapter 4. As we read, if you are able, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word? Um, And we will do that together this morning. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning. and Father, as we read the, this passage of James, Lord, it, it hits us hard. Um, and he uses some language that is at times disturbing. Lord, he uses some things that cause us to, to look at ourselves intently. And Father, we just ask this morning, Lord, we beg you this morning that your word would be clear to us, that our hearts would be open and that we would be able to accept it, that we would be able to apply it as we go through the rest of our week. God, that we wouldn't be like the fool who looks in the mirror and then turns away and forgets what he looks like, but Lord, that we would look into the mirror of Scripture, we would ask difficult questions and we would allow you to transform us into the image of your Son. Father, I pray. Father, be in this place in this moment. Lord, that your spirit would move us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have quite a bit to cover this morning, so I'll try to go quickly. But like I said, James earlier, James is continuing in chapter four, what he started in chapter three. I know this is gonna blow your mind. But in the original Greek, there are no chapter and verse numbers. Like, I know that's just astounding to you. I know it was to me when I was a kid. Like, I remember that point as a teenager when someone introduced that to me, and I was like, wait a minute. Like, you mean James didn't sit down there and write chapter 4, verse 1? Okay, that was good. Chapter 2, verse 2. Da, 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 da. Okay? Okay, maybe you do understand that. No one's laughing at that joke, so I'm just going to continue on. But. There is that chapter break there, but when we read James as a whole letter, what we see there is this is a continuation of a thought process. Okay, This is a continuation of what he is trying to say to us about earthly wisdom versus godly wisdom, about the flesh versus the spirit and what's happening inside of us. And James ends chapter 3 with a comment on what... Um, earthly or what work, what godly wisdom says he says in earth, in 18 he says a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace he ends that chapter by helping us to see what the harvest what the fruit of the spirit is when we adopt godly wisdom as our decision making process but then in verse four he goes back and he helps us and he highlights exactly what happens when we pursue our own passions when we pursue the flesh and we allow worldly wisdom to be our decision-making guide. He says there in verse 1, he, asks, he starts with this question, What causes quarrels and fights among you? It's that your pa- Is it not that your passions are wo- at war within you, desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel? You do ha- not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions he lays out there clearly some things that happen. In chapter 3, he just says that it's vile practices, okay, that all sorts of things that begin to happen. But here he begins to draw it out, and he begins to show us that when we use worldly wisdom to dictate how we make decisions and what we pursue, when we go after our own selfish ambition, which we talked about last week, when we allow jealousy, jealousy to have a foothold in our lives, then all of these things begin to happen. We begin to quarrel among ourselves. We begin to fight. We begin to gossip. We begin to backslide and slander each other. These people weren't actually murdering. You understand that. He's using hyperbole here. But what they were doing was they were destroying one another and the relationships that they had because they were all about themselves. And we, too, have inside of us these passions and these desires these things that we just want. And if we do not watch ourselves, if we do not pay close attention to what is happening, then we too will allow those things. We will allow selfish ambition. We will allow jealousy. We will allow all sorts of manner of things to take hold of ourselves, and they will destroy the relationships around us. And they will even put a barrier between us and the Lord. We must pay attention to this. And that's what James is saying here as well. He is getting our focus on the war that's going on in, on inside of us. He says there, is it not your passions that are war within you? You see, when you became a believer, and I know that you know this, but when you confess the Lord, when you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you made Him controller of your life, you confessed your sin and asked for repentance, then you were born again. You were given the Spirit of God. He came to dwell in you at that moment, and He continues, the Holy Spirit continues to work inside of you to transform you into the image of Christ. But that doesn't happen overnight, does it? How many of our members would like to stand up and say, you know what, as soon as I believed in Christ, I became a perfect human being. I never screw up. I never do anything wrong. If you would like to admit that this morning, then please stop, drop, and roll because your pants may have a problem. That one worked. Okay, good. Write that one down. Okay? But none of us do that. Okay? Inside of us is these two factions, and they are attacking one another. Our flesh is still present. Our desire for sin is still present. Because guess what? It feels good. Okay? I like to describe it this way. I am no longer in shape. Those days passed me long ago, okay? I know that I need to get in shape. I know that I need to slim down. I know that if I don't, that eventually, like, diabetes is, like, right around the corner, okay? Like, I know that's there. And yet, there is ice cream in my freezer. And there's one half of me that's saying, dude, you need to stop. Like, put the spoon down. But then there's this other half of me that's like, dude, you only live so long. Like, just enjoy it, okay? Like, if you're going to be a diabetic, you might as well eat all the sugar you can now while while it's available. Like, there's these two sides to that. Do you have that? Okay? We all understand that. Okay? We all get that. The same is happening in our spiritual life. We desire what satisfies us right away. And in doing so, we ignore the perspective and the wisdom of heaven that says, no, that is not what's best for you. Paul describes it great. You'll you'll hear me hopefully say this more than once. But we have some great resources. And there are great commentaries and there are great Bible studies. The best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. So let's turn real quick to Romans 7. I want you to see another perspective on this. I love this passage in Romans 7 because for me, I'm like, yeah, I totally get that. Romans 7, we're going to look first at verse 15. I'm going to read that. You're not going to get there in time, but that's okay. Verse 15, and then I'm going to jump down to 21. It says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Jump down to 21. So I find it to be a law, a rule that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members, in in my flesh, in the rest of who I am, another law waging war against the law of my mind. Here the law of the mind is is the spiritual, it's scriptural, it's what we want to do as, as believers. I see a law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul beautifully paints this picture of this battle that rages within me. And I think all of us can identify that if you're a believer, if, you're, if you have truly been born again, then inside of you is that desire to obey the Lord, to obey Christ. There is a desire and a hunger to go deeper with Him, to have a relationship with Him that is meaningful, you look at people that have prayer lives and like God is just blessing them left and right. Not necessarily that their life is totally easy, but they're, they're seeing prayers answered. They're seeing people come to know Christ through their discussions. And we sit there and we go, I want that. I want to be a part of that. And yet there is a whole other side to our personality. There's a whole other side to us that is saying, uh, I really don't want to get up that early. Uh, you know what, I really I've got a lot to do on a Wednesday night, I've got a lot to do on a Sunday evening. Uh, you know what? I will let that go. You know, when I get done with work and, and, and all that, I, I just I just want to relax. Are you in that boat? I'm in that boat. I have these two sides waging inside of me. I understand exactly what Paul is talking about. And James is trying to get us to focus on it because I believe that this is one of the main issues that we have in the church is that Satan has done a wonderful job, an amazing job of lulling us to sleep to the point that we don't even recognize that there's a battle happening. We don't recognize that there are two parts of us that are attacking each other, but rather we have been lulled to sleep and have gotten to the point where we just say, you know what, it's okay, I'm fine, I'm doing good. I go to church on Sunday, I read my Bible on occasion, it's fantastic. I'm going to make my own decisions, life has been good to me, God has blessed me, nothing's really seriously wrong, it's all okay. And we don't see what is going on inside of us. And James is saying, and Paul is saying, and all of scripture is saying, you must understand that you are not finished yet. You are not a finished product that there is still a war being waged inside of you. Yes, you are saved. That is eternal. That is final. That decision has been made. But you still have these things inside of you that are going on, and you must identify that and then learn what to do with it. So first he says that there's a battle within us. Then he moves on here, and he calls us to be different. Verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Turn with me really quick to Matthew 7 or sorry, 6:24. Hopefully it's the right verse up there. Matthew 6:24. You guys have probably heard this verse before, but I want you to see here James is not making this stuff up. Okay? We've talked about this before. James isn't the ultimate pastor. He's the ultimate preacher in that he's taking the Old Testament and he's taking the words of Christ and he's opening them up and helping us to understand how to apply them to our lives. 6.24 says this, No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other he, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. James is just expounding upon that. He's saying you must, you must make a decision every day. In, a, in the last part of Ephesians, Paul calls us to put on the armor of God. A soldier doesn't put armor on just when he feels like it. A soldier doesn't put armor on just one day, but rather he puts that armor on daily. He knows that if he is to be prepared, that if he is to do the job that he has been called to do, that he must do it in every moment because he never knows when the enemy is going to be there. In the same way, God has gifted us, God has blessed us with armor. He's blessed us with weapons to fight the battle with. But because we've been lulled to sleep, we have laid down Scripture. We have laid down our prayer life. We have laid down the gathering of believers. We have laid down accountability. We have laid down righteousness. We have laid down truth because we have been lulled to sleep and said there is no battle. But James tries to wake us up and say there is something going on and you must choose what you are going to follow. Are you going to allow earthly wisdom and your flesh to dictate the decisions that you make throughout your day? Or you are, gonna, are you going to allow godly wisdom and the Lord to dictate those things? What is the choice that you're going to make this morning? He also uses an interesting phrase there that I want us to highlight just for a second. He uses the phrase, you adulterous people. They're at the beginning of... Of verse 4 you can see it there for yourselves you adulterous people that's pretty harsh language that's really harsh language up until this point if you go through the book of james for the most part when he addresses his audience he says brothers or brothers and sisters don't you see this brothers or sisters don't you understand this okay it's been very inviting language even though then he like hits you upside the head with the truth okay it's been very inviting language But at this point, when he's trying to make us aware of the battle that's going on and he's trying to get us to make a decision about how we're going to live our lives, he says, you adulterous people. That's strong language. That should hurt a little bit. Why does he do that? I believe he does that because he is speaking to a church, the early church that was made up of primarily Jewish people, And he knew that they would hear that language and immediately relate it to how God spoke to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Go back through the Old Testament and try to count the number of times that God or one of his spokesmen goes to the people of Israel and says, you adulterous people, what are you doing? Specifically, we can look at the book of Hosea, and we get a great picture of what James and what the Lord is trying to share with us the whole book of Hosea confronts the people of Israel and says, you are an adulterous people. At the beginning, if you don't know the book of Hosea very well, at the beginning of the book of Hosea, God asked the prophet Hosea to get married. And so he does. He marries this lady named Gomer. Why you would do that to a child, I do not know. But he, he says, you're going to marry Gomer, that had to get Hosea excited. And, oh, by the way, she's probably going to cheat on you. She's going, she's going to have an affair. That really makes you want to get married, doesn't it? Like, thanks, God. Thanks for giving me a wife named Gomer. That's a, that's a blessing in itself. And thank you for predicting and telling me that she's going to cheat on me. I'm so excited about this marriage. I can't wait to enter into it. Okay? But that's what Hosea does. He gets married, and from what we can tell at the beginning of Hosea, the marriage starts off normally. Okay? They have a kid together. It seems happy. But then throughout the, the start of chapter 1, what begins to happen? Gomer begins to be unfaithful. And there's one and then another child that are born, and Hosea's like, yeah, that's not my kid. I know that's not my kid. And, and Hosea's heartbroken over this. Okay, And then later, in the book of Hosea, Gomer has gotten so far away from her relationship with Hosea that Hosea finds her, and he has to buy her back. We don't know whether she owed debts. We don't know whether she had gotten into a gambling program. Most scholars believe that she might have been a slave, though the price is not quite right for that. But no matter what the situation, Hosea had to go. He had to scrounge together some money, and he had to go buy his wife back. That's how far Gomer had went. She didn't even belong to her husband anymore. He had to buy her back. And throughout the rest of that book, God helps the people of Israel to see that they are like Gomer. But that scripture still stands for us. See, you, if you are a believer this morning, have also entered into a covenant, into a relationship with God. You made him God, and he made you his child. And it is to be a special relationship, an intimate relationship. But when we allow our passions and our desires to make decisions for us, when we run after things that we should not run after, then we find ourselves trapped by that sin. We find ourselves so far away. People have used Hosea to say, well, this is a, p- a great picture of a sinner and when they're redeemed. My friend, you understand that she was already married to Hosea. Just like the people of Israel were already in a covenant with God. Just like you and I are already in a covenant with the Lord if we are a believer. She had strayed; she had wandered away. And yet Hosea shows more grace. What a beautiful picture of what God does for us. Maybe this morning you are caught up in those passions and those desires, and you have gone away, and you're like, I don't don't understand. I I can't ever get back. And you can look at the picture of Hosea. You can look at what we're going to read here at the end of this passage. God gives grace. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to wander at times. But we must make a choice to return, to come back to him. So James wants us to understand that there's a battle going on. He wants us to make a decision. And then he paints a picture of the jealousy of God. Okay, He's painting this picture of us as adulterous people, Okay, people that need to return to their first covenant, to their first love. And then he paints a picture of God and his jealousy over our affections. Look with me there in verse 5. It says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I need to stop here for just a second because if we're perfectly honest and if translators are perfectly honest, there's a little bit of confusion over this verse. Okay? This verse can be translated two ways, and both ways are correct according to the rules that we have for Greek. One way to translate it, and this is the way the NIV, I believe, translates it, is that our spirit is a jealous one. That's the idea behind how they translate it, that it's our spirit that's jealous, okay? That our spirit yearns after things. The other way to translate it, and this is the way the ESV translate it and several others translate it, is that God is jealous for the spirit that he has placed in us. And I believe when you read, as your pastor, and and I'm not alone in this, but I believe when you read the context of the passage, that that is the appropriate rendering of the text. That's the point that James is trying to make. That doesn't end the confusion there, though. Because if we back up to chapter 3, jealousy is seen as sin. Have you ever thought that in your early years? Maybe if you're a young Christian, you're a baby Christian. I know I struggled with this for a while. That I was like, wait a minute. God gets to be jealous, but I don't. How does that work out? How is that fair? But we have to understand where those sources of jealousy come from. You see, when you and I are jealous, we are jealous after things that don't belong to us. We're jealous over things that are someone else's. We haven't earned them. We don't deserve them. When God says that he is jealous for his people, he is jealous for affections, He is jealous over things that are rightfully his. He is jealous over things that should not be somewhere else. The best way for me to draw a picture of this is the relationship between a wife and a husband. We have entered, Melissa and I have entered into a covenant with one another, and my affections are rightly hers, and her affections are rightly mine. And if another man tries to come in and steal her affections, as much as I can muster, there will be force. Okay, I may lose that battle (laughs) in the physical sense, but there will be force. He will be reckoned with, all right, and rightfully so. I have a right to be jealous for her affections, and she has a right to be jealous for mine. I can tell you right now, if I show affection to somebody else, you have not seen the wrath of the hundred and ten pounds redhead. Okay, there will be a reckoning day, and she will not lose. Okay. And so is it with God that he loves you, he is passionate for you. He doesn't need you, let's understand this. But he loves you and he wants you. And he will meet anything that steals your affection with divine force. You don't believe me? Go read the Old Testament. Every time Israel wanders away and they pursue something else, they commit adultery against God, he brings them back. And if he has to use force, so be it. And not only does he discipline his children in that moment, but he absolutely destroys the person or the temptation that led them away. God doesn't mess around with this stuff. We must understand that. And so too it is with us that God desires your affections. He desires your passions. And if you choose to run after something else, you will face discipline. You will face force. And he will do whatever it takes to get you back because he loves you, because he desires you, because he is passionate about you. There's a battle raging inside of you, your flesh versus the spirit. And you must make a decision. And if you choose not to make a decision and choose to be continual, go on in your ignorance of what's going on, then God will help make that decision for you. may not like that outcome you may not like what happens during that period it's what's best for you do you believe that but it it can be painful so let's go on here's the great part though we get to verse five we see the we've been or verse six we've been through the battle we've been, been through this decision process we've seen the jealousy of god and what that means for our lives and then we come to verse six and we have a sentence here that is almost un-James-like in some ways. We've been hit upside the head so many times that when James shows us like a hint of compassion, it's like, oh, what happened to him? But there in verse 6, but he, God, gives more grace. We all screw up, even after we become a believer. We all stumble. We all turn away. We're all like Gomer in that, yes, we've been married, but you know what? Sometimes we just pursue what we want to pursue, but he gives more grace. doesn't mean we should take advantage of it. It doesn't mean that we should run after those things because we know, oh, he'll forgive me. That's not how you treat a friend. That's not how you treat your parents. It's not how you treat your grandparents. You go, oh, they love me unconditionally so I can do whatever I want to them. That's not how that goes. You know that. But it does mean that when we do make mistakes, he offers grace. He steps out there. There's an ability for us to come home like the prodigal son and to experience the love of the father. But that also takes a choice, and that choice is submission. We don't like that word, do we? That word submission kind of makes us kind of, especially as Americans, I think, it makes us kind of cringe a little bit. Because submission means that we must lay something down. We must give control to someone else. And this is where we come back to the question that we asked last week. Do you believe that what God desires for you, for your family, and for your church is what's best? Because if you honestly believe that, if you wholeheartedly understand that, then submission is easy. Submission is easy. Because you believe and you know with your heart that God loves you and that what he desires for you is what's best. When that is the case, then submission comes easy. James then goes through a list of commandments, a list of things that happen when we submit to God, when we turn to Him, when we allow, when we make the choice to allow godly wisdom to run our lives. He says there in verse 7 of our text, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We need to... Embrace God there in verse 8 it goes on it says draw near to God and he will draw near to you we need to again this is a call to be aware of the battle that's going on to understand that our passions are fighting in, inside of us we need to be aware of that and we need to just stop we need to say no no more not today you're not going to take me down that path I'm not going to make that decision I am not under your control any longer i am a child of god and turn and embrace him because he's standing right there and if we do that it says that the devil will flee that he will run verse eight there continues on after it says it says draw near to god and he will draw near to you then it says cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded we must for me, that, that means we must remove obstacles. There are all there are things in all of our lives that cause us to walk down paths that we don't want to walk down. Maybe it's a television show. Maybe it's an internet site. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a hobby. But we all have things in our lives that cause us to stumble. They cause us to put our priorities in out of whack, to put something else above the Lord. Those things must be removed. Jesus says it this way. If your eye is causing you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand is causing you to fall, then cut it off. We must remove those things that are causing us to walk away from the Lord. And then verse 9, probably the happiest verse in all of Scripture. Be wretched and mourn and weep. I was using sarcasm there. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This sounds like a great way to live, doesn't it? James wants us to understand here, though, that we must take sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. That's right, I've heard of your former pastors and I know their favorite phrases, okay? We must understand that when we sin, it grieves the heart of God, it breaks the relationship that we have with Him, that He is so holy that He cannot look upon it scripture tells us we must understand that we must understand the seriousness of our sin and when we do that it will cause us to mourn it will cause us to weep because we understand what we have done and, and the consequences of it it will cause us to look at the cross and understand that he died there for us that those sins that we commit had to be paid for And I want you to be careful, brother and sister, that you understand this. This is not moping. This is not self-pity. Paul says there in Galatians, I believe, that there is an earthly sorrow that leads to death, but there is a heavenly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life. This isn't, oh, woe is me, I'm a horrible person, please don't look at me because I just don't deserve it. This is a repent. This is a guilt. This is a sorrow that understands that He died because of what I did, and I desperately need Him to forgive me. I desperately need that relationship. When is the last time? And I had to ask myself this a lot this week. When is the last time that you looked at your sin, you looked at the shortcomings where you have faltered, and you genuinely felt sorrowful over them? Where you genuinely understood that Christ died because you did that. And it caused you to fall to your knees and ask for forgiveness. It's a serious thing. Thank goodness for verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When you come to that point, when you do go to your knees understanding your sin and what it has caused and your need for forgiveness and for grace. you humble yourself before him when you submit to him God will exalt you I'm thankful that I'm around brothers and sisters who understand this you don't see believers moping around all day long if you do there's something wrong okay you don't see Christians who like wear sackcloth and ashes all day long but rather we live lives of abundance we live lives of joy we live lives of righteousness and peace why because God exalts us He desires us to live a life abundantly. And that's what we miss out on when we choose worldly wisdom. Yes, there are times when we need to repent. There are times for weeping. There is a need for us to understand the seriousness of sin. But when we understand it and then we experience the grace of God, He exalts us and He brings joy and peace that are not understandable by this world. So we must understand the battle. We must make a choice. We must choose to come home and understand what that means. And then he ends in kind of a weird way. It's kind of disjointed. But what he's doing is he's wrapping up, kind of bookending chapter 3 and chapter 4. In chapter 3, if you'll remember at the beginning, he was talking about the tongue. At the end of chapter 4, he goes back to the tongue. Because all of that comes out of the tongue really at the heart of that issue is that flesh versus spirit issue that we've been talking about for the last two weeks. He says there in 11, do not speak evil against one another bro, one another brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And then there at the end in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? There are times when we, when we pursue God, okay? This is, this is a danger that we get into, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because we talked a lot about the tongue. Um, a few weeks ago but there is a danger when we pursue god for legalism to creep into our life for us to look at a brother and sister who is stumbling for us to look at the other gomers that are around us that's a fun phrase right now there to look at the other gomers that are around us and to say how could you come on pull your life together get a get a grip on things what are you doing That's not grace. That's not grace. That's judgment. And when we choose to look at a brother or sister and to pronounce judgment upon them, to slander them, to gossip about them because they are struggling, that's not grace. That's legalism. And I want us to understand here, too, this is not saying that we don't confront issues in order to restore people. Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus makes it very clear that if there is a brother that's doing something wrong, that we are to go to him in love with another brother and try to restore that person to the church, try to get them to see what's going on in their own life. But it's not out of judgment. It's not to say, what are you doing? You're a horrible person. It's to say, hey, my brother, you're stumbling and I love you and I can't continue to watch you do this without saying something. At the end of James, at the end of chapter 5, we're going to see how when someone goes after a brother who is sinning, that he saves his soul is what James said. We need to confront sin, but we don't cast judgment because there is only one judge. There is only one judge. And trust me, you and I are not him. Thank goodness. So we must be careful that as we pursue this battle, as we fight this battle inside of us, these passions that are going on this between the spirit and the flesh, that we don't misidentify the enemy, that we don't see the enemy as a brother or sister, but rather we understand that the enemy is our own, is our own evil passions, our own sin, and Satan. All right, let's look in the mirror real quick. A couple of questions, and then we'll get ready to dismiss Again, we asked this question, I just reworded it a little bit, but it's still the same question. Are you convinced that a relationship with God is more important than anything else? Are you convinced that a relationship, are you convinced that what God desires for you, your family, and your church is what's best? How do you answer that question? Second question, do you take sin seriously? We've talked about that a little bit this morning. Do you take it seriously? Do you understand what it is and what it does to the heart of God what it cost, the price that had to be paid for that sin, do you take it seriously? And does it cause you to run towards him? And then lastly, are you different without being judgmental? We're called to be different. We're called to be strangers in this land, not to be of this world. Okay, We're, We need to be different. We need people to look at us and go, "What's what, there's something strange about them. But we need to do it without being judgmental. We need to do it without casting shadows on people they have people have enough problems they don't need us piling on top do they need to hear the gospel absolutely do they need to understand right and wrong absolutely do they need somebody that comes and says gives them all kinds of grief for it i don't i don't think so and let me say this and i know i'm running close on time but let me say this real quick in a crowd this size someone here has been hurt by church someone here Has had a believer or a church as a whole do something and or say something hurtful. Can I, on behalf of that church and on behalf of brothers and sisters, say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that they did that. That's not a reflection of Christ. That's not a reflection of His heart towards you. He loves you. He knows that maybe you screwed up. Maybe you didn't. I don't know the situation. He knows that you screwed up, and he offers grace. Doesn't mean there aren't consequences to that. Doesn't mean that your life's going to be perfect. But let me apologize on their behalf. But guess what? You have a step to take, too. You need to forgive. You need to take that apology, and you need to offer forgiveness to that church and to those people. We all screw up. We all do things wrong. You can't carry that burden around forever. It's just going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your opportunity to have a relationship with those in this room going to hinder your relationship with the Lord. So I apologize, and I hope that you will forgive this morning, that you will open your heart up to this church, that you will open your heart up to the Lord. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. We've covered a lot of different issues this morning. I don't know how the Word is speaking to you. Maybe you just needed to be aware of the battle that's going on inside of you. Maybe you, you were unaware of the... The war that's being waged between the flesh and the spirit. Maybe you just need to talk to God about that. Maybe you need to make a choice this morning. Maybe you've never come to know the Lord. Then I hope that today's the day of salvation. That you will choose Him and understand that what He desires for you is what's best. Maybe you're a believer here and you've fallen away. Or you've allowed the flesh to control your situation, to control your decisions. Then I hope this morning that you will make a choice to return to submit to humble yourself before him to weep over that sin and then allow him to extend grace to you maybe you're here this morning and there's a whole host of other things going on i hope that this morning you will respond that you will have a conversation with the lord you will talk to him and allow him to speak in your heart this morning whether that means coming to the altar whether that means bringing someone else to the altar and allowing other uh, brothers and sisters to pray for you i don't know what that looks like but you be obedient this morning let's pray father we just come before you and <clears throat> father we're thankful for who you are we're thankful that you love us you don't need us you have no deficiencies in you whatsoever and so the fact that you choose to pour your grace and your love onto people that are sinners. is is just mind-blowing to me. The fact that you call us your children, that you have adopted us and made us your own, astounds me. The fact that when we run away and we do stupid things, that you choose to show grace is amazing. Father, help us to remember that this morning. Lord, help us to find our joy and our passion in you as we pursue you and as you pursue us. Father, I pray this morning that we as a church would respond to you however you would have us to do. We pray this